Hi, and welcome to Brothers Without Banners. I'm Dan, and I'm here with my brother Michael to help lead him through his first time reading A Song of Ice and Fire. We'll be diving into the chapters we're discussing today and those we read before, but the only spoilers beyond the chapters we discuss will come from Michael's vague memories of the first three seasons of Game of Thrones, the TV show, which he watched a decade ago. Today we're discussing Tyrion 8 and Catelyn 10 of A Game of Thrones. How's it going, Michael? Did you say Blothers Without Blanners? I didn't. Should we change the name? <laughs> change all of our social media accounts. Where are uh, the Blothers? My blother, Michael. Oh, am I my blother's keeper? Uh, <laughs> blother, where out thou? <laughs> uh, I got no other oh, brother man. references. Uh, hey, At man, least we think we're funny. We're hysterical. Hi, Ukrainians. Uh, <laughs> one day we're gonna we're gonna open that email account that you made, and we'll see all of the fan mail that came in. Yeah, I uh, I did mess up the email address literally both times I said it last week. Amazing. Uh, so I put that in the episode notes with the right one. I'm going to put it in the show description. Uh, but yeah, excellent job. I was I had it open too. I was looking at the Gmail account, reading from it, and still managed to boof it twice. So way to go, Dan. Wow. You really tie it up, Dan. You really tie uh, it. Yeah, topical reference there. You know, you. I, I think I've said this before on the podcast, and uh, this is a sign of how great my organization has been throughout this first season of <laughs> ours. But I can confidently say, since we're coming up on the end of the book, one of these chapters is my favorite one in this book. I feel I feel good saying that. And you'll I feel be like you've already hear, said that. Oh, that's literally what I just said. I admitted but, I've already said that. But it was about a different chapter, again. Dan. Yeah, but this time it's correct. Until two weeks from now, when I say it again about a different one, is it the sex no. scene between Bronn and Tyrion? God, I wish. What, Ugh, a, what, what a fantastic book that would be. There's like a PS chapter. There's like a, <laughs> a <laughs> an addendum in the back, and it's like Tyrion's dreams. That's uh, a beautiful thing. No, it's the Catelyn chapter, which I think is just as disgusting to you, but I really do love it. I'm sorry. We'll the get one to why would part of the one that like this this episode's Catelyn chapter. Yeah, you are the worst. You're the dumbest. Doing no, this with you great. is the most negative thing I've ever done. Now, as of now, because <laughs> of what you just said, I can't wow, believe we. What episode number are we on? Twenty-five. Blah. What a waste. All of it to come down to Catelyn being one of your favorite chapters. I've been clear the whole time. I love Catelyn, but this Catelyn chapter in particular is an excellent chapter. And I'll explain why when we get there. Well, I'm excited to sleep through that explanation, Dan. Uh, You're welcome. Should we jump in? Should we talk Tyrion? Let's do it. Take us away. Oh, Tyrion. Where um, did we last see Tyrion, Michael? Yeah, so well, I have no it idea. It wasn't that long ago. We last saw him talking to his dad saying, hey, I brought all these savages to help with your war effort. You should yep. love me. Yeah, that's about, it's a pretty solid summary. Uh, it's funny because these two chapters, Tyrion and Catelyn, so, so first things first, we're following right on the heels of sort of the last chapter, which I think was Rob, not the very last chapter that we read, but the last episode we did. Yes. Rob and Catelyn together, they're building up their armies, they're at the twins, they're moving down, they're strategizing, they're coming to war efforts, to war effort, uh, they're being cool, cool Winterfell people, it's like a big deal. Uh, and this Tyrion chapter picks up right on the heels of that. So last we saw was Tyrion with Tywin. They're talking about getting like ready for the battles and what their roles are going to be and what Tywin has to do. A lot of daddy issues here. Uh, yep. 
That's for sure. More like game of daddy issues. <laughs> uh. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, oh god! But we find now uh, this is this is uh, sort of the you know we, it, it's funny because following up right on the heels of the Rob chapter that we did last episode, this really is sort of like the other side of the coin, right? We saw Rob strategizing a little further north up at the Twins. Lord Frey's castle and the splitting of the army to go exactly. around yeah. the river that on the, the sort of east and west side of that river. Right. Like one towards River Run and the other kind of coming down towards wherever Tywin is. I don't know. Yeah, march just marching south towards Tywin. They're they're kind of in between major landmarks here. Uh and we find ourselves now in Tywin's camp through the eyes of Tyrion, uh, as they're sort of like you know they're they're pretty high on their haunches at this point. They feel they like they know what's going on. They and and they share with us very quickly and early on. Rob's moving his army south along the King's Road, basically coming down. Uh, they feel well prepared for it. Um, and uh, yeah, it's and, fun to have this moment so early on in the chapter where where they're getting updates about the Starks' movements. Where this is one of the rare situations in this book where we as the readers have more information. Right. Then the characters or, or then the plot is giving us. We get to see right off the bat Rob's plan has worked. They're talking about Rob Stark is making his way south. It's one day north from here. Uh, and, and we're going to have to fight soon. And that'll resolve things. And we just know that that's not the case. Rob is not here. I will say that a lot of this comes out in conversation as Tyrion kind of comes up to his father at his father's table as he's with his sort of like uh, top generals and all of this. But um with with the the fact is is that a lot of the conversation is about sort of the war effort and what the status is. A lot of the tone and the the perspective is this sort of like I don't know petulant child with his dick of a dad. Like yeah, <laughs> you know the daddy issues. Uh, and probably all for the right reasons. We have some insight about Tyrion and his relationship to his father and their past from some previous chapters. But basically, it's exactly as we've come to understand it, as Tyrion sort of explained it to others and the little bit that we've seen in their own interactions over the past few chapters that they've been together. You know, the dad's blowing him off uh, to a certain extent. The dad's super cold and doesn't seem to have a lot of emotional capacity. And Tyrion, for all of his previous sort of like comments, and you've brought this up before, right? Comments to John, you have to own your deformity. You're a bastard. I'm an imp. Like, for all of that type of like language and for a lot of his bravado, we really find him now short of stature. <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> yeah. You know, he just, he just not, puns. isn't able to, to live up to the high expectations of his father. Yeah. P puns aside, it's so clear how much his disability bothers him in this context with his dad, because his father's disappointed in him, in his disability, in the fact that he is not normal and can't live up to these expectations. And he expresses it with so much disdain for Tyrion, and Tyrion's response is, is almost, like you were saying, that petulant child trying to get a rise out of his father. Tyrion, Tywin, excuse me, Tywin is not angry with Tyrion. Tywin is not lashing out at Tyrion. Tywin is dismissive and making fun of Tyrion, and Tyrion can't stand that and keeps trying to bring it up, uh, cracking jokes about himself, you know, effectively saying, oh, you hate me because I'm a dwarf. And Tywin just doesn't respond to it. Like you were saying, it's perfectly, it's completely cold, perfectly level. Uh, he does not rise to the bait pretty consistently. And it seems like that bothers Tyrion that much more that he can't get a reaction that says Tywin cares even. 
And I think, too, that Tywin is becoming a really excellent sort of contrast to Ned Stark. Ned with his overthinking of honor and who he owes, you know, deference to and how to be not even not even a good politician as much as just like an honorable chief uh, right. and share honor about who his family is and where his, you know, who he represents. Whereas Tywin cold and calculating, there's not a lot to love. And to be honest, there's not a lot to hate about Tywin in my perspective. He's fine. He's kind of a dick. He seems like he has a huge ego. We later in this chapter see his armor, which is like mm-hmm. unbelievably gaudy uh, yeah. in its sort of like uh, in its presence. He backs up the ego, though, which I think is kind of what you're talking about. He is pure power, pure distillation of power. He is Machiavellian. He instills fear and backs up that fear with violence when he needs to uh, and uses that to rule absolutely over this camp that he has, over Tyrion, over Uncle Kevin, over the people underneath him. And that generates respect. It generates obedience and seems to enable him to get things done in a way that Ned really fully was not able to do because he never dictated terms that way you know machiavelli's child actually wrote a book called daddy please don't hurt me again and okay. uh, i'm just kidding i had a better joke in my head it just didn't come out it, uh, it was, yeah, well they're not you know, all winners i didn't even get to say machiavelli jr like there was a whole it's a whole you want to give it another shot we are recording we can we can do takes here no 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 if, uh, right, do it live let's keep moving. do it live um Anyway, uh, so, you know, you and I just now have been talking about sort of the larger aspect of the conversations, what's going At the end of the day, the facts on the ground right now are Tywin is kind of a jerk to Tyrion in a cold, dismissive way, exactly what you're saying. Uh, At the same time, we're understanding a little bit of what the strategy is right now, uh, what they understand is going on about Rob riding south, that they're prepared for it. Uh, We find out that um, Tyrion's, sorry, Tyrion and Tywin are very similar. Tyrion's uh, savages that he's brought, these clansmen that have come with him, uh, have been armored at the begrudgingness of the uh, armorer, Lord Leopard. uh, Master at arms, Lord Leopard. But they've been armed, and in fact, Tyrion and his savages will be placed in the vanguard, sort of right up at the front, uh, defending sort of the left flank of, like, the front line, basically. Uh, there's there's a little bit of back and forth here where, you, and I think that this is done in a really interesting and nice way, the way that it's written. We, we clearly understand, it's like very clear to us, this this uh, emotional bruising that's appearing for, for Tyrion. He's not getting the love and affection, the, 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 the attention that he really probably does deserve from his father. At the same time, uh, not only is his father dismissive, it seems aggressively negative to, like uncaring towards Tyrion. I'm going to put you, dwarf child of mine, right up at the front line with your shit army that you brought with us uh, to serve right under, who is it, uh, Gregor Clegane? Yes. Right, this sort of wild monster of a of a person. And with yeah, that... Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Uh, it, with everything that's going on between Tywin and Tyrion, like I was just saying about trying to get a reaction out of him, what we get here from Tywin seems to be very cold and calculating, like you were just saying. And if there is any hate, it's a very cold hate. It is not uh, a fiery emotion towards Tyrion, which I think would at least get him some of what he wants or, or on a subconscious level is some of what he's striving for. But instead, what he gets is pure strategy, placing Tyrion as a replaceable 
unneeded pawn to be used in this because he simply doesn't care about him. And I think that he seems to care. bother Tyrion that much more than if he was actively, if Tywin was actively trying to off him in a way that showed uh, there was a threat or there was some issue that Tywin was trying to clear out. As it stands, there's just nothing from Tywin. Right. Uh, Tyrion kind of leaves his father's table with distaste. He decides to leave early. He doesn't even eat his food. He understands that he's kind of being sent a little bit to the slaughter here uh, or without a lot of defenses and, and a lot of consideration from his father towards him and what his position will be. And he he walks through the war camp, like walking his way back to where his, his tent is set up. And we see that this just enormous sprawling army there. And we also see uh, a lot of, it's not the right word. I want to say luxury. People are having a good time here. Uh, yeah. It's a whereas we found Rob's retinue of you know soldiers as they're coming together. There's a real seriousness. They understand that they're fighting to to win back what they've lost. Right? They're in the negative, fighting out of it. Whereas Tywin's like army here seems really confident in themselves. They seem like yeah, we're we're dominating. We're we're clearly taking taking the moves in the land that we that we need to be. Yeah, you know, you have to think about it in terms of the context of what they've been dealing with so far. This is an army that hasn't really been tested, that has won very easily all of the skirmishes it's had because they've come up one by one against small groups. And from that perspective, all they have, all they can even see is the the glamour of it that we've been talking about all book, the beauty, the, the shining lights of war. And when you're winning, when you're winning easily, when you're sweeping through an area and plundering and burning as you go, right. it becomes that much easier to focus on that. So we have all of these descriptions, the giant tents that the lords are living in, the pavilions, and you know these knights with their shining armor and with their horses uh, kicking back and eating well and eat, living off somebody else's land and all of these things. Um, and I think that that's a big part of both of these chapters that we're dealing with here, kind of the splendor of war, the thing that gets mm. people to sign up and go, uh, the the really the the propaganda version of it, as we've talked before, running headfirst and smashing right up against the brutality that waits on the other side as soon as you do face that test, which inevitably comes for one of these armies right. when they finally come up face challenge. I like that a lot. Um and I agree. Yeah, that's exactly, I think that's a wonderful way to put it. We find that Tyrion kind of moves through this camp and he he says, I actually really like this line, that uh, he was surrounded by men sworn to House Lannister, a vast host, 20,000 strong, and yet he was alone. Uh, he feels alienated in his own body, around his own people. And I think there's actually a really subtle psychology that that's being spoken to here in the best of ways, mm -hmm. which is when you're in outsider amongst strangers it can kind of work to your benefit he's rowdy he grabs attention and then owns that attention but here he's an outsider with those that are familiar to him and i think that what is you know with with strangers is a cool uh you know attention grabbing and way to own a room here is dismissed as yeah you're not a, you're not going to get any better we we already know where your limits are i like that a lot i, I really do like that i had a different slightly different takeaway from this not that they don't work together mm -hmm. but that the nature of Tyrion's outsider status in this society is based on his physical deformities and on mm -hmm. the fact that he cannot participate in the glamour and the splendor of 
military life the way everyone around him can. Ooh, yeah. So while everybody else is celebrating and enjoying themselves on this campaign that has been so easy and wonderful, he's the one person we see who's apprehensive about what's to come because he knows he's at a disadvantage in that world, that he is going to struggle when it gets there. He is the most likely of anybody else there to die. And right. so much like Rob's forces in the north who know that they're going up against larger armies who have already lost something with their liege lord being taken captive and the the missing daughters and all of these issues that go into that he is somewhat similar in similarly in that position because he can't simply sit back and shine his beautiful armor and be excited about how many kills he's going to get the next day and how glamorous he's going to be in the songs that are made about his valor afterwards right we do find after he goes through this large camp and he feels alienated and he feels alone, he's, I think, unsubtly welcomed by the group that does like him, which is his savages. Right. Uh, these sort of like monster clan, they love him. They see they seem to be treating him as a uh, sort of celebrity, as he seems to be treated a lot when he's further away from these areas. Right. Uh, Half man, I think they refer to him as uh they they feel they're excited to be fighting this war they want to get sort of the the laurels that have been promised promised to them we also meet a new wanna, character oh go ahead before we get to the new character i just want to mention something because it gets seated it shows up a couple times here this is something that i'm i'm pretty uh straightforwardly stealing from the not a cast podcast which is a the game of thrones chapter by chapter podcast that i listen to but the reference to him the the sobriquet the celebration of him as half man is so interesting because this is what his advice to John would look like in practice. Make it your armor, make it the thing people can love about you. They are saying, look at our leader, our celebrity who is different and they are celebrating him for that. And he shies away from it. He's embarrassed. He, he kind of cringes in response, which goes to undermine that statement to John, like we were talking about that he is not in fact living and embodying that aspect of things and it shows up both here shows up again later when he mm -hmm. the the character we're about to meet refers to him as as the giant of lannister and he mm -hmm. kind of takes it as a barb as a joke where if he were able to own that side of himself maybe he would have a more positive reaction to somebody trying to shine a light on it in a not negative way for once yeah i like that too he does find his way through the sa this savage clan that he's brought Back to his own tent, we uh, are brought back to Braun, who is sitting there. Uh, we meet our, our a new character, who I assume will be here because he has an introduction. Uh, a squire for, for Tyrion named Podrick Payne. Yes. Who is a distant cousin to Sir Illyn Payne, who is just as reticent, but does have a tongue because Tyrion made him prove it. Yeah, this is just an awkward young kid. You know, we've seen a lot of... Uh... A lot of teenagers in this world coming from royal families who are very cocky and arrogant and loud. And here we have, you know, the the uncomfortable, awkward nerd of the group. And it's nice to see that that exists in this society, too. We also introduced quickly to another character, uh, Shay, who is a whore. Um, yes, she is. Per Tyrion's request, Bronn has gone out to bring him a whore. I uh, I will say that uh, I'll touch on this part quickly. It's kind of like like kind of fun, sweet. Um, that that on the one hand, as the story is, what it's moving through is, yeah, Tyrion wanted a whore. It's been a minute. He talks about it. It's been some time since he's been with a woman. Okay. It's time, uh, and he loves it. It's a very positive like sort of experience for him. At at the same time, 
Uh, the word that I took away from a lot of this is it's, and I think this extends further throughout the chapter, but shame comes to mind. He, you know, he even talks about as he was telling, like what he was, he thinks back on what he told Braun to do. And he said, I need you to go find me a whore, but you need to let her know what my stature is. I don't want to have right. to deal with the eyes of a whore that looks at me without understanding what I'm about to, like that, I'm, that I am a dwarf. Yeah. He, he wanted to avoid the negative surprise and seeing yeah. that reaction. And, uh, and, and again, so it's these two things at the same time. One is this positive engagement and interaction with the whore that is there. Shay, she seems to really understand what he's about, which is I'm going to give you money and you have to give me some pseudo love. Uh, and uh, but at the same time, his inner his inner monologue is is a lot about, you know, like as good as this is, it's in reaction to previous experiences of shame and being looked at and, and stared at in different ways that he does not want to have to go through. Right. I, I want to emphasize just for a moment that pseudo love aspect of it. He tells her, you know, he wants her to be his lover. He's going to be paying her. And in exchange, she needs to treat him the way a, a, a courtship, a sexual courtship would, a girlfriend of sorts. And, uh, and she, you know, it has to be monogamous. She can't be with anybody else. And she's going to live with him. She's going to stay with him. She's going to take care of him when he uh, arrives after a long day of riding. And there's so much sadness wrapped up in that uh mm. and shame i think is the perfect world word for it. it it brings to mind uh the stories that you see from from various sex workers talking about their experiences with mm. businessmen or divorcees or you know people on the road who are really just looking for company more than they're looking for sex and we really get the impression that that is what Tyrion is looking i mean he, he's clearly seeking out both but this is him asking for companionship in exchange for money because he firmly believes based on his prior experiences that that's the only way he can get it i think i we even get a a reference a little later on i'll say to thinking about jamie where he thinks how or excuse me this was actually a little earlier this was when he was talking with tywin um about how jamie can secure obedience and loyalty from his men just by being glamorous by being the celebrity and being mm -hmm. impressive Tyrion buys it with gold and compels obedience with his name this is how he believes everyone around him will react to him no one will love him for him no one will follow him for him he has to get it through purchase yeah i i think i read it a little less heavy-handed than how you're talking about it specifically with the woman not about jamie but uh, -huh. uh you know, like, like, yeah, I, I could see that even a full statured man of his level of uh, of prosperity, if you will, I'm not here to share whores. Okay, like, I'm giving you money. I expect you to stick Absolutely. around. Totally. I fair. think also the the it's interesting too because these comments that he's making about himself, like what you're saying, you know, how Jamie can, you know, command with a uh, a personality that 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 compels people into his command and things like that. I think a lot of this, it's funny, it, it reminds me of just like that that sort of family dynamic, right? Like it's like everywhere else I'm a consummate professional, but as soon as it's like I'm sitting across from my mom or my dad, right? I'm like, oh, you're always nagging me. What is It's like, are they actually or not? Because I think in a lot of other, you know, in contrast to what his words are that you were just saying, right? I only have gold and, and you know, I can only pay people off. Uh, it wasn't long ago that he was held as a prisoner in the eerie and he knew that what he really had was his ability to talk and he can be compelling and he can be witty and i i do think that that he is underselling himself in this emotional familial moment yeah you know i i, I more meant it 
as an insight into how he thinks of himself rather than reality. And I agree, you're right. He did have that thought about his other skills yeah. in the Eerie when he was in the cell. Uh, but it's the contrast between, you know, thinking about Jamie without noticing his own ability to do that with the Klansmen. They've already been paid. They got their armor and steel and they're still sitting here celebrating him coming out for the glory and the honor of it. And, and there's an avenue for him to focus more on that than on the transactional nature of some of these relationships and he can't see it uh yeah i like i, I agree with that um the chapter goes on for another 10 or 12 pages and, and we're going to talk about it but i'm going to group a few things before getting to some specifics okay we have Tyrion, you know with this whore you know and, and all of this we have this moment where he goes outside he has a small conversation with Bronn in the middle of the night Bronn continues to be a basic minor one note kind of character he's witty yeah, and he's on relief. tywin's uh, Tyrion's side you know what i yeah. mean like he's like great i'm with you let's go do it we're gonna uh you know he's uh he seems to find a nice way to make light of some situations that Tyrion takes so seriously uh you know big a tiny man with a big shield is a great person to put in the front where the archers real you're gonna befuddle all those archers right like nobody's business he's, he's got a great attitude uh the majority, if not really, the rest of the chapter is a battle. Yes. Uh, he goes we back to get sleep. out of the office chapters. <laughs> uh, he goes back to sleep, not before having more sex with his horror, uh, but he goes back to sleep and he wakes up, uh, is, is awoken in the middle of the night, kind of shaken awake by the horror because all the horns are sounding and she's saying she's afraid. They've been surprised. This okay. is the plan that Rob had set into motion, the, you know, team Stark, if you will, although we know Rob's not with them, uh, right. you know, those who are coming down the King's Road have taken this sort of like overnight ride to come and attack this camp of Lannister. Uh, and, and a lot of this, you, you know, I'll, I'll break it into sections a little bit. The first section is the getting ready, right? So we have this sort of wonderful montage of Tyrion putting on this sort of like cobbled together armor for him. He has yeah. great armor that fits him, but it's in Casterly Rock where he is not. And so they've had to scrape together. He looks very, uh, well, hodgepodge is the word that comes to mind for me. That seems right. Yeah. Um, silly is the other name. There's a lot of self-introspection. Again, he wonders, you know, does Jamie think about death before he goes into battle? There's a lot of comparison of self to others. I I will say that, uh, why don't, why don't even... I can't read my oh yeah i'm reading my notes i'm like, what the hell does that say <laughs> i will say that things unfold rather rapidly of getting everyone into position his position in the front in front of his mm -hmm. savages that he has with him uh they need to defend you know basically between the battlefield and this river that's there and make sure nobody crosses gets into it uh but for all of Tyrion's uh sort of clear-eyed understanding of his vulnerable position uh he is going into battle like a soldier i uh, you know he he is not what i would have thought i you know what i thought would happen in a battle for for Tyrion, and especially being put in the front is that he would kind of become uh mousy and be like i really don't want to be in the front i don't right. i'm not gonna do this he doesn't he takes his role he understands the the position he's in and how negative it is and he does it he gets in front of his men and he leads the first charge which yeah, i just thought I was like impressive that. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. And I think there are so many different things that go into it. Obviously, we've gotten to know him and his personality quite well 
over time, but I think those family aspects really contribute. He wants to prove himself. Mm -hmm. He wants the respect he feels he deserves. And clearly, physical strength, physical resilience is going to be the only way to do that. And so he has to go through with this. Um, But, you know, kind of similar to other characters we talked about before, he doesn't flinch. He thinks about being afraid and wonders if that makes him a coward, which is, of course, another theme that we've talked about throughout this book, but nonetheless stands his ground and goes for it. I, I like that a lot, too. I'll add. Um, oh, yeah, go, ahead. go ahead. Well, I was just going to say as a, as a last thing to add here is up front, he takes a look. He sees Sir Gregor Clegane, you know, this enormous menacing mountain of a man. And uh, Braun makes this amazing comment where Braun looks at Sir Gregor and basically says, oh, he's follow a big man into battle. And Tyrion kind of gets mad at this. He's like, fuck off, dude. Like, like, yeah. <laughs> are, you, are you making fun of me? Because I'm not as big. Like, like, I understand I'm small. And Bronn is like, no, you misunderstand. He'll distract all the archers. Yeah. Everyone's going to go for this guy. Bronn's really worried about archers. He's really talking about them a lot. Well, uh, you know what's funny, though, is that Bronn, as small as his character is right now, seems to have the most, like, hands-on react, like, re- like hands-on experience slash real, like, clear-eyed perspective of what's happening here. Mm-hmm. I don't understand what his motivation is. Is it for the money that he thinks he's going to get from Tyrion? Is it just because he loves to kill people? He just enjoys having a friend. I don't care at this point. Like, it's just fun where he is. But with that said, the man's experienced. You know, he he goes and he's he's a sellsword. He gets thrown into situations left, right, and center all the time. And he's like, okay, I know what we're about to do here. I see exactly what's going on. Yeah, let the archers are nasty. (laughs) Like, like, I can't fight an archer from where I am. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's definitely speaking from a place of experience. I want to pick up on on a couple of things you mentioned there. The first one is just, I'm, I'm just going to keep talking about this theme because it's so much so the theme of these two chapters for me. But Tyrion absolutely has the experience that I've been talking about, finally, of seeing the splendor and the glamour of it as he gets to the field. And I think George R. R. Martin does a really wonderful job writing this side of things. In the dawn light, the army of Lord Tywin Lannister unfolded like an iron rose, thorns gleaming. This is where we get the description of, of Tywin's armor, which goes on for a full paragraph yeah. of, of how resplendent he is and how glorious he is. And, you know, you really get to see that the the rippling of the banners and the sun glinting off the armor and the sword points. And then we see Gregor Clegane. And Gregor Clegane is huge, but is wearing fully gray armor. There's nothing glamorous about him at all. It's dull slate. And I really like this moment because from the stories we've gotten from Sander Clegane, it makes sense for Gregor to be the avatar of the violence, to be the one that strips all of the riches and all of the glory from it and instead is pure distilled strength pure distilled violence he is big he is there to kill and that is all he's doing and he even has this little little speech to encourage the men which says any man runs i'll cut him down myself he's not here to talk about winning glory and writing songs he is here to kill people and that is what they're all here to do the rest of them are just trying to bury it under things so i I think it makes perfect sense to have that presented from gregor the other thing i wanted to mention though is just going back to the night march of the northmen because this drives me insane and this time reading it, it it always has this time reading it i had a different sense because of something you brought up a few weeks back where you were talking about the Northerners being outnumbered by the Lannisters, why haven't they thought about or come up with the idea of some sort of a guerrilla campaign? And uh, 
I think it's a great point, and I think it simply boils down to them not having any better ideas. Because what we have here is this night march that takes the Lannisters by surprise. They all have to wake up and come running out to form up, and they find the Starks a mile away from the camp getting into their own battle lines, you know, and giving the Lannisters the time to get set themselves. And right. when you add to that the fact that we know that this is effectively a decoy fight, it just becomes so maddening to see them approach this as a normal battle, you know, and it reminds me, I, I compared it last time to the American Revolution, it reminds me of the British approach here, where they have mm. the numbers, they have the ability to overwhelm, and instead they go to the field and they line up in a big row and they wait for the other side to do the same, so they end up losing because of that. Um, and so it just makes me think that without the smartest generals in the army without the people who are running things that this is the decoy force that they're left stuck with the same usual plans and the same usual tactics even though they know they're here to lose they know that they're drastically outnumbered and they're not here to actually win this fight so i appreciate you you bringing that up last time when we were or a few episodes back when we were talking about it because it mm -hmm. helps put this a little more into context for me of yeah you don't get creative ideas from the people who aren't creative you get the same old same old and it ends in failure and that's you know that's that's true in war that's true in business it's uh true at all of our works yeah. all of our jobs like this is just kind of the way the world works for sure. Yeah. I'll add also that something that I thought was interesting is that uh, during this setup, uh, Tyrion makes a comment about his father and his father's position as a strategic side. I thought this was a really wonderful contrast to like a Ned type perspective as well. Tywin stays in the back. He actually stays at like a, a, a sort of like like high perch perspective mm -hmm. so he can see the battlefield and he's with he stays with the reserves. So that when there's a need in one area or another, his reserves can go and run out and kind of join that and support, which on the one hand seems like strong strategy. On the other, it seems very ant antithetical to, you know, the sort of like front, lead the men from the front, be the leader. Uh, you, he seems to be playing a strategic game of chess while others like the Starks and the, their whole, you know, clan that they're putting together seem to be saying this is a war and we have to fight it as as honorable men of fighting wars, which I just right. thought was interesting. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'll add also that that Tyrion, as he watches this all sort of find itself setting up, getting itself set up, he starts to think about Rob Stark and he and he's done this often. And I like this a lot from his character. He's giving credit to the enemy. He's he's saying, you know, this is not an idiot kid. You know, he he wonders, is he bringing the dire wolf with him? But but Tyrion has a sort of a realistic sense of mortality uh, right. that gives an honor and credence to those that he's standing across from. And I, I don't know if that's because of his deformity or it's just the type of you know his 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 you know his temperature in general. But I thought it was interesting. I, I appreciate that he was. Uh, yeah, I think it's a bunch of different things kind of combined into one. You know, on the one hand, he has somewhat more experience with Rob Stark than Tywin does, just that we've seen this book. And so maybe is that's informing some aspects of it. Maybe there's some stubbornness in response to Tywin's confidence. He's trying to get one up on dad just by being the one who notices, even if he doesn't say it out loud, that maybe this plan requires uh, overestimating Rob's youth and inexperience and stupidity right. and then the other part of it certainly which i think must play a role is his own fear uh coming from his deformity yeah. coming from his lack of experience there's a great line in here where the northerners start arriving and they they blow war horns that make this loud deep 
ricocheting sound that kind of takes over everything and goes through Tyrion's body. And in response, the Lannister trumpets sound, which sounds to Tyrion smaller and more anxious, which is mm. such a wonderful way to communicate his state of mind to us. The trumpets probably sound like trumpets. And there are plenty of situations where that sounds uh, triumphant. That sounds exciting. It sounds uh, uh, wonderful. And it's Tyrion putting his own emotions onto this and believing that that means that they are doomed, that they are losing. And, and mm. so he's he's definitely bringing some of that attitude to his perception of things as well. I'll say kind of extending right from that into the next thing that happens. I think there's this wonderful balance between Tyrion's perspective and then the reality that we see unfold. There is, as this story is moving forward, right up to what you're saying, right? A little bit of nervousness that the Lannister side has had to rush to get into formation. They didn't expect it. They got taken a little bit unaware. You know, you have this sort of negative perspective that Tyrion's bringing. And the next thing that happens is the battle starts and it starts by Lannister archers mowing down, Yes, you know, the front lines of the, the sort of Stark army that's over there. And it's like, oh, wow, like, here we go. Yeah. You know, I, I mentioned a few episodes back and I should have saved it for here. The whiplash that I got from Stark versus Lannister fighting from Tyrion's perspective. And mm -hmm. I think this chapter was what really drove that home the most for me the first time I read these books. Um, so, you know, we don't usually talk directly about the TV show, but they, I believe for budget reasons, actually cut this battle. We go straight to the other side of it and see the conclusion uh, mm, okay. of it rather than actually seeing the fighting. So when I read this, um, this was my first experience of the actual fighting. And there's a moment in a few pages, in a few, few seconds, that we'll probably get to where one of the stark knights that Tyrion is fighting against calls out for Eddard and Winterfell. And it's that moment where this entire chapter, this buildup, I'm scared for Tyrion. Tyrion's scared. Yeah. This is going to be concerning. This is going to be a problem. And then he gets there and I realize, oh, for Tyrion to come out of this okay, the Starks have to lose. This guy screaming Eddard and Winterfell has to die. And ultimately yeah. Tyrion beats him, I, I think. The, the night in question survives yeah, uh, with serious injuries. But regardless, it's a, it's a just a crazy second, crazy moment where you say, oh shit, which side am I even rooting for here? With that said, the battle has kicked off. They get into position. I will say right before the battle really gets into, it like starts to move and the first like die is cast. Uh, Bronn and, and Tyrion recognize something very quick, which is what Tyrion was understanding talking to his father the night before. They are on a flank made up of sort of the shit soldiers, you know, th they feel like sacrificial lambs. Yeah. Uh, this is not so, a part of the army that is expected to win its matchup against. Yeah. And the it's clear, boys. like it's visibly clear. Yeah. Bron, there's Bron like, calls the people around them crow food. Yeah. 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 But with that said, the battle starts and it, it's kind of fun. Tyrion starts off leading his sort of savage clan but it's quickly overtaken. They they ride out in front of him, but he he displays some real valor, I'll say. I mean, he goes and fights, and I was actually surprised. I mean, like, Tyrion kind of kicks some asses in, in this. Uh, yeah. You know, I like the way it's done because he succeeds. He wins these one-on-one -on -one matchups that he has, but he doesn't do it through skill or overpowering force. You know, he kills a horse with his helm kind of accidentally. And that's how yeah. he wins one of the fights. You know, it's 
it's the kind of bumbling Jar Jar Binks in a combat scene sort of situation. It's not that comic. Uh, but, you know, Tyrion, it wouldn't make sense if Tyrion all of a sudden uh, had a flash of brilliance and became a great swordsman. He wins in ways that feel correct for him. I suppose, but I will say I did have a little bit of whiplash. Somehow this little man, who I will say as a little bit of a, a jibe to George R. R. Martin, this this little dwarf's proportion seems to change on his situation. Yeah, uh, that's fair. He's able to use his battle axe and he kills people, but then he can't reach, but then he is reaching somewhere. And Okay, all of that's <laughs> fine. The fact yep. is I was surprised by how victorious he was. I really expected him to fall into the back and live in that shame that he had been th- sort of thinking about. But at the end of it, he really comes out on top. He does defeat like a knight, uh, albeit like in a weird way, like using his helm to stab a horse. Um, I'm not going to, there's a lot of, I, a lot of the, the next few pages are really fun battle scenes, but I'm not going to dwell yeah. there. It's hard to to talk about it, but yeah, the battle happens and the Lannisters really strongly come out on top. Yeah. Uh, they capture, they take a lot of men captured uh like men that we know about this is uh oh and i i thought i listed them here i have um, uh, it's it's all names that we've heard because it's all lords you know the peasants right. don't get taken captive the yeah. lords get taken captive so we hear uh lord serwin or lord kerwin i never know how to say mm-hmm. it sir willis manderley who of course was one of catlin's escorts harry and karstark four of the phrase uh were all taken captive Lord Hornwood is dead, who's, you know, one of the Northern Lords, but Roose Bolton escaped. Right. Um, We also find out, although I don't think it really matters, but we get a little bit of a conclusion to uh, Tyrion's sort of like, like, like mountain men that he brought. Uh Half of them have died. Right. Uh, The other half seem to be like, yeah, we're fucking monster savages, but okay, whatever. Yeah, they're pumped about the fighting and a little sad about their friends who are dead, but mostly pumped about the fighting, which I think yeah, exactly. uh, it kind of fits um, with them being one note characters so far. We do get uh, a nice little conclusion where where Tyrion comes to find Tywin and they have a little bit of a talk. Uh, Tyrion kind of confronts Tywin. He's like, hey, couldn't help but notice that this whole side that you put me on was a bunch of ragamuffins Sucked. and losers. Yeah. And Tywin has no qualms being like, oh, yeah, we really actually wanted that side to fall so that the Stark army could go in that way. And then we'd flank them from all sides, we'd kill them. And Tyrion's like, oh, so you sent me to die. And he's like, ugh, don't be dramatic. <laughs> kind of not wrong. You kind of <laughs> did do that. Uh, um, yeah, but, you know, he he's, Tywin is surprised here. He thinks Rob was more cautious than he expected. He didn't take the bait on this. And so right. at this stage, you know, we actually haven't gotten the list of those captive lords just yet. Mm, uh, right. They come in a moment because uh, Tywin has not yet learned that he fell for a trick. And that's exactly where we end up. That the, the, Really, the next paragraph, the next page is he gets the report of who was captured. He finds out Rob Stark was not there. And not only was Rob Stark not there, it turns out that he crossed this is what the captives say he took half the army and crossed the twins basically right. and is going to river run uh and Tyrion has this sort of like internal snarky comment about his dad he's like you thought the boy was green didn't you you dummy he's yeah. so brave yeah we should also mention just since we skipped past it Tyrion did get hurt in this fight he seems okay but he he took an injury yeah, to his arm at morning start and so this last line he he would have laughed at his father's failure if he hadn't hurt so much 
Uh, you know what? I'm going to make a, a big assumption here. I don't think he would have left if he wasn't hurt. <laughs> I, I think that that's a little bravado there from a little man. Yeah, I probably uh, didn't want to confront Tywin that way, uh, if I had to guess. Um, I'll say overall a fun chapter, not necessarily my favorite Tyrion chapter. Uh, I, I like his wit. I like when he has yeah. to use like a lot of brain power to get himself out of situations. He can be very cutting and acerbic. Uh, in this, this chapter, is not his he, strong suit. It's not, it, but it is fun to see him. Fun's a weird word for it, but as a reader, it's really interesting to see this character from a very different self perspective. Uh, seeing that shame, seeing him be really consider himself small in front of his father. Uh, and it's fun to see fights. It was a fun fight. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So let's keep moving here. Let's uh, let's head on to Catelyn and my absolute favorite. Well, I cannot wait to rip into you. Um, <laughs> no, I love this chapter. This chapter so perfectly <laughs> embodies the themes that I've been talking about because it's such beautiful prose. This has nothing to do with Catelyn. Catelyn doesn't even really do anything in this chapter. It's just that she happens to be the perspective from which we get this beautiful sight of another battle from a perspective from outside of it and it, it's so the epitome of the glory and the glamour and the beauty of the fighting and I, I just find the writing so compelling and so well done so poetic that I really enjoy reading it you know I can't help but think that this chapter and the way you're talking about it is a lot like as if you and I went to a baseball game and it's like the pitcher's last game of his career. And right up through the sixth inning, it's a perfect game. Uh -huh. And there's like all this emotion involved. And it's just, oh, my God, it's his last game. And it's a beautiful evening. And the grass is so crisp. And what? Oh, and the yeah, heartbreak exactly. that comes. And I'm sitting next to you with a $12 hot dog and a $15 beer being like, oh, this game. No one's hitting the ball. Like, what a boring <laughs> game. Uh, I hope you know, Michael, that for any listener who watches baseball, you came out looking way worse than that story. And for any listener who doesn't watch baseball, they really, really think I'm boring. Yeah. Uh, well, so I think that makes it the perfect analogy. I'll have any listener that read this chapter also thinks you're the most boring human of all time. <laughs> you know, what? I will say it. before getting into the specifics, uh, Catelyn, we are picking up right on the heels of where we left uh basically the last rob chapter that we saw this mm -hmm. is everything's happening chronologically very close to each other right now we saw in the Tyrion chapter the half of the army that came down the king's road we are now seeing in the catlin chapter the other half of the army going to river run right. um we i will say before getting to specifics of this chapter yeah there are some beautiful images in this chapter uh it there's uh -huh. Yeah, 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 shut up. Uh, <laughs> you know what? There's beautiful images in fashion magazines, too, but I'm, like, not a big fashion fan. Um, we do a fashion podcast? That would be funny. We both dress like shit. We do. I just, uh, I realized I have ink all over my T-shirt today. <laughs> uh, I noticed that a little earlier this evening. How um, long have you been wearing the T-shirt for, Michael? Well, I wouldn't be lying if I said for the last three days in a row. <laughs> oh, amazing. Perfect. <laughs> um Hey, it's right there on the floor when I wake up. So like, why not just toss yeah, it? That's how you know it's good. With that said, there are some really pretty moments. I do want to give it just a little bit of atmosphere. The fact is, is that we are, we are spending a deep night 
and early morning with this army. They are doing a surprise attack. They are waiting patiently. They are strategically in a really interesting place. And it's beautiful to see just how they kind of come out of the woodwork. You talked a moment ago about like, wouldn't they do guerrilla warfare and this and that. And I think we have a great contrast. Those that were continued south down the King's Road that we just saw in the last chapter, maybe not the cream of the strategist crop. Uh, whereas here we see a little more strategy, a little more resistance, uh, uh, sorry, a little more, uh, uh, not not resistance, but but holding back a little bit on being yeah. overly ambitious. They're quite strategic, and it really is lovely. We yeah, do get all absolutely. of this from Catelyn's point of view, which makes it hella boring. Uh, <laughs> uh, but but she, I'm gonna I'm going a little bit out of order here. But the truth is is that Catelyn is sort of watching all of this from a little bit of a distance. She has a guard around her of 30 men to make sure that she's protected. And if things start right. to go south, they are ordered to take her back to Winterfell. Rob has right. made sure of this. Um, we have a lot of sort of strategy things set up early on and, and put into place where we understand that from the conversations that the Lannister army down here in River Run is sieging River Run. But in order to do that, they had to divide themselves. They had to quarter themselves basically around the river. Uh, this uh, is yeah, my so understanding. It's not quarter, it's three camps uh, is, is the only place where you're off. Uh, so there are three rivers that mm. are two okay. rivers that come and meet. Um, I'm going to give you a bit of, of world building that we haven't gotten to in the story yet, just because I think it's helpful for understanding this. Sure, yeah. River Run sits at the corner where those two rivers meet, and they have a setup where they're able to effectively dam those rivers to create a moat on a third side of the castle. So they're surrounded by like a triangle of water. And so to besiege the castle effectively, to be able to prevent anybody from getting in and out, you have to set up three camps, one on each of the long sides of the triangle, each of which has rivers between your camps. So you can't get across very easily, which is part of what makes River Run such a stronghold. So let me ask, actually, so while we're here, we know that in this chapter, they are at River Run. This is where this happens. Where are they? I'm looking at the map right now in the front of the book. Where were yeah. they in the last chapter? Where was Tywin set up? Is he, so is Tywin, he the, the, the trident? Sorry, and I realize this must be fascinating to all our audio listeners, but like, ooh, a map. Uh, anyway, I'm yeah, just trying they, to... They can pull it up too. Okay, so if you're looking at it, uh, mm -hmm. find River Run and yep. find the twins. Yep. So that first fight was south of the twins on the east side of that river that the twins crosses. So it's it's pretty far away. Um, but it's not so, down to the trident. No, it's not all the way down. It's okay, somewhere between... Okay, okay. So we know that the... the where the trident comes together that's close to the inn at the crossroads is that mm -hmm. on your map or, or, or yeah 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 well the trident is yeah yeah so we know the inn at the crossroads was where tywin where Tyrion met up with tywin's camp and so they've been marching north when we start up Tyrion's oh chapter. okay 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 so, so they're just in between there in, uh, in between there and the twins meanwhile we've now picked up with rob after he's made the quick march south uh we learned they passed by seaguard which is on the bay there and uh, mm -hmm. picked up the malister men but they march as quickly as they possibly could all the way south to River Run. Uh, they're a little ways north of River Run in what's called the Whispering Wood, uh, so named because of the little sounds and the streams going through it. But of mm. course, we get that reference right here at the start of this chapter. The woods were full of whispers, which is kind of our introduction to that prose there. But so that's where this battle is okay. taking place with the rest of the Lannister army camped out around River Run where these two rivers meet each other. Gotcha. And with those two rivers, they are sort of split into this uh, triptych 
of sort of like, like this, this trifold split. Uh, and we have, uh, and I'm so sorry, because I'm going to forget his name right away, but I think it's, uh, oh, and I'm going to forget his sobriquet as well. Uh, oh, Sir Brendan, it is, right? Yes. The Blackfish? Yes. Is that him? Um, but he's been doing reconnaissance. So, so and, and I think that this, yeah, he's been doing some reconnaissance. And he basically turns around and says, listen, they're split exactly how we kind of assume that they would be. This is how you have to siege River Run. And we have right. one thing really going for us, which is that Jamie Lannister's there, and that man has no patience. He right. will not stay like sort of in, in, entrenched in his siege. He keeps leaving his camp with men to chase raiders and go, you know, they thought they heard a noise over here and this and that. Exactly. And if we can maintain some patience, we can hear catch the, him uh, out. I hear the, the Metal Gear Solid alert noise in my head. <laughs> what was that? Um, I will say that, uh, and, and and feel free to jump in and say if you want to like sort of dwell anywhere. But the truth is, is that this chapter, to me at least, moves very quickly. It's from Catelyn's point of view. We hear some of the strategy. We hear what Black, the, the Blackfish is saying. We know that Rob is setting things up in the right way, and they're getting themselves into position. All of this from Kat's point of view, and she's waiting. She's seeing some beautiful imagery as well. It's, it's a beautiful start to this battle. Yeah. But Before at we the get same the time, the, yeah. well, I'll just add that at the same time, Catelyn is going through her what is now becoming a little bit of a hackneyed uh, emotional roller coaster of being a mom but supporting her son and he's a war guy but he she's a son and blah 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 okay we get it you're emotional you're an emotional <laughs> mother mothers are uh, family in general it's not a it's not a sexist thing father mother you care but at the same time like I don't I don't care Catelyn I don't care that you care yeah show yeah, me the bat I get it I. I have a, a lot of things to bring up here. First, I just want to point out that this plan was developed by Rob. Uh, so, you mm -hmm. know, Brendan was bringing him these reports and he said, okay, you're going to go raid Jamie Lannister here and then you're going to ride off in this direction. We'll be waiting here and that's where we're going to ambush him. And so this is just showing his growth, uh, both in his ideas and, and his ability as a battle commander, but also in his ability to take command, his growing strength and confidence, which of course has been a, a central theme for Kat through here. Um, but I want to respond to that last part of what you were saying. I, I don't think I need to belabor the point on Kat as the mother and, and you know, her worry for Rob and all of that. But I think that there's a wonderful parallelism between her in this chapter and Tyrion in the prior one, where it is the outsider the person who is not meant to be here, who is not able to participate in quite the same way, and their impressions of this. For Tyrion, it comes from fear for himself and worry about his ability to physically live up to what's going on. For Kat, it comes from her fear for Rob. And I think that that's a really interesting way to show the glamour of the fighting because it undercuts it. It helps bring in a different element. It is not just the celebration of war and fighting that we often see in, in plenty of fantasy stories, but also in plenty of, of war stories. What we're getting here is the 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 Saving Private Ryan style, the World War II style of the fear and the danger and the violence of it embedded in that seriousness, yeah. in that uh, honor and duty aspects of fighting that are worth celebrating, that are worth honoring, but also undercut with the war is hell side of things. And I, it starts from the beginning here. You know, yeah. I'm, I'm with you. We don't need a repeated theme of, oh, I'm so scared for him. What if he dies? But 
Kat's first line, the first real line of dialogue we get here is, it will come when it comes, and when it came, it would mean death. Uh, and I think that that's such a crucial thing. Whereas, you know, for Tyrion in the last chapter, and for all the men around him in particular, they're looking out at the glory of it and at the wonder, and they don't see the death until it arrives. And Kat, because of her fear, is constantly sitting with that, constantly worried about it. And I think that makes for yeah. an interesting perspective on a battle. I, I get that. And I don't deny an interesting perspective on the battle, but I will say and go back to a comment that I made some time ago, I think about Sansa, but I stand by it about Sansa and I'm starting to get to it about Catelyn, which is I don't think George R. R. Martin writes women very well. And uh, the reason that I say that is this, what's happening here is instead of trusting, I'm saying this about George R. R. Martin, this is just mm -hmm. my take, right? I don't really yeah, know. Yeah, no, that's fine. But I think that instead of trusting the reader to remember these types of comments that Catelyn's been making for the last chapter or yeah. two chapters, he's shoving it back he in our face. Explicit. Yeah. He does. And it, it, it becomes, you know, what I was thinking about, a lot, to me, it became distracting. And it became uh -huh. distracting because Catelyn keeps repeating this sort of similar phrase for the past several chapters right now, which is, I have to be strong for my son and I have to let him do this. But at the same time, I'm a concerned mother. And it gets to a point where it's like, I can only imagine that like, like, like I think about this and I'm, I'm talking in caricatures here, not about anything or anyone specific, but I think about like men who become like special forces guys. You know, these are the guys that are going into the shit all the time, right? They're, they're going into the worst of the situations. And the women that they marry, the families that they have, and I assume including up to their mothers, especially for a character like this, who is like a, a political consultant to them. Like, you got to understand that this is part of it. I understand Rob's young. He's only 16 or 17 at this point, you know, but like, this is life in this world. Like, mm -hmm. this is what it means. Ned did it when he was the same age. Like, right. I need this woman to tone down the emotional like worry and concern i understand it's there it's part of this but like step up into the strong supportive political right hand of her son this is the man in control because the way that it's written for me here and i'm just bitching about the writing at this point and i realize yeah. that like the story's fun and the, i think the, the fight is fun and i get it but I'm I'm getting a little tired of every Catelyn chapter has to be her internal struggle of how hard her emotions are to swallow and hold down and how strong she is to do that because she has to trust. It. I'm like, okay, I get it. Like I get yeah. San, and same thing about Sansa at this point too. No, that's I get totally, it. She's I like totally understand. drowning yeah. in Joffrey, you know, love. But it's like, okay, you're really going to ignore your entire family? Okay, I get it. You're, you're, you're yeah. overwhelmed by this. I, I have I have two different thoughts on that. One is on the writing and one is on the content. In terms of the content, um, I do think that there's something interesting to explore here where we've talked about Catelyn as kind of the older version of Sansa, where she's the avatar of femininity mm -hmm. in this world. And, and she occupies a privileged place in the nobility from her class, from her stature, from her family, where dealing with the struggle of this world is inherently contradictory to her. She occupies a position, and again, I'm, I'm kind of cribbing here from the Nauticast, she occupies a position in this world 
where she is able to believe that the system operates well and that the system is good. And we've seen that from her. She's not like Arya. She doesn't want to rebel against any of it. She wanted to get married to the important Lord and to have his babies and to raise his family. And that's the role she wants to play. And it seems like so much of her life has been disrupted by these wars that have gone on over the course of the last 30 years that she has not been able to live what she seems to believe is the normal version of things. She seems to think she lives in, in interesting times. And I agree with you that everything we've gotten from this world is that that is simply not what it ever is. And this is a fiction she's telling herself, kind of similar to the fiction the soldiers are telling themselves about the glory and glamour of war, when really it's mud and blood, blood right. and dirt and gore. So, so she's doing the feminine, the female version of what the men are doing alongside her. And I think that's interesting. In terms of the writing, I think you're making a fantastic point here. And I'm hopeful that uh, as we get into book two and beyond, that that pairs itself back a little bit. Because this is something I found myself noticing more and more in other media. It kind of started with the, the Wheel of Time series with Robert Jordan, which is what makes me hopeful that it's less the case here, because it stood out to me there in a way it never has for Game of Thrones before. And maybe coming back to it this time, that won't be the case anymore. But it's a very uh, lawyerly concept where um, I, I learned the standard line when you're cross-examining someone is you never want to ask one question too many. You want to draw hmm. out everything you need to make the conclusion, and then you want to tell the jury the conclusion later. You don't want to ask them, okay, and why did you do that? Because then they're going to give an explanation that isn't the one you want everyone else to think. Right. And I think a lot of fiction writers often have the problem of not one question too many, but one sentence too many. We have all of the pieces to understand how Catelyn is feeling. And yeah. then there's the sentence at the end of the paragraph that says, so Catelyn was feeling worried. And as if you just strip that one thing out and leave it under the surface, then it just becomes a much more subtle, much more enjoyable yeah. piece to read. And so, you know, I'll see as I go through it this time, it's been a few years since I last read these books. Maybe it's something that I noticed more this time around, but I'm hopeful that as George R. R. Martin, Martin gets more into the series, this becomes less and less of an issue. Uh, yeah. and, and we'll have to keep an eye out for it and see it because I agree with you. It does get frustrating and it's not something, you know, I even feel the need to talk about on the podcast every time she mentions it. We just, yeah. we just don't have to do that. I do wonder, too, if maybe like from a style perspective, when George R. R. Martin was writing, especially in the earlier books here, if he was writing chapters like vignettes. So mm -hmm. this chapter, if it was a standalone piece, this is just a fantasy short story. Right. Everything makes sense. The fact that this is the third or fourth chapter of Catelyn kind of talking like this is like, OK, enough. Yeah. I'll also add too that something I think that George R. R. Martin might be struggling with a little bit here. And I don't think he's alone in this struggle. I think this is a, a difficult thing to write. But this is not a story of rich versus poor. Those who have like the Lannister, just for example, right? Like right. as if it's the Lannisters have always had and the Starks have been like a good farming, like, like leaders of the farmers. Right. And they're out in the wilderness. It's like these are haves and haves against each other. And I think that part of the issue here is that it's trying to, this is my take, right? But like I read it as, Look at these Starks who are are these sort of like, you know, the the, the ram, rambunctious is the wrong word, right? Like the <laughs> emotional, they have the pathos that the Lannisters don't for yeah. us, the, the readers to get into. But as soon as you start to contrast that with the Targaryen story with Daenerys, where they've all been wiped out, when you get to contrast right. it with Jon Snow, who isn't loved, with Tyrion, who 
you know, isn't loved. And it, it's like, okay, like Catelyn, you're a queen. You are a right. fucking queen. So I shit together. I think this is a good pivot point, hopefully for you, because I think you're misunderstanding the intentions behind it in that they're more critical than you've been looking at. And mm. part of that is, is you're not wrong to get that impression so far, because I think we're being set up in a way that's, that's ultimately being knocked down. I think what I'm talking about in terms of Catelyn, you know, papering over deficiencies in this world so as to protect herself is very much so in the text. I don't think I'm bringing that there, but so far in this story, what we have is you're exactly right. Highborn point of view characters meeting with other highborn people. We have the political drama. We have the Game of Thrones, which is exclusively pay, played by the rich and powerful against the rich and powerful. And as Varys was saying, two episodes ago is lost almost exclusively by the poor and not powerful. And we're simply not seeing that so far. We've gotten small glimpses into it, uh, in particular from Arya with Micah, the butcher's boy, right. and her yeah. friendships with people in that world. We've gotten some element of it from Daenerys, just from the fact that she does not have that same wealth and stature because the Targaryens have come down. We've seen some of it at the wall with the conflict John has come into with people from poorer backgrounds, but it has not been central to this book so far. I do think that that is one of the major themes of this series. And as we keep going, you know, without getting into Starks or Lannisters or any specifics like that, as we keep going, we will start to see more of those perspectives and more of that that con those concepts of how are these decisions impacting the people that cat is not thinking about how yeah. are they impacting the random soldier in the stark army who despite this being a wonderful beautiful victory dies today uh and she's only worried about rob she's not worried about those thousands of other men and it doesn't just have to be the stark side it can be on the lannister side too the unnamed man that Tyrion cut down last time or the unnamed men that rob is cutting down this time what are their experiences what are their lives and what's the fallout from from what they're dealing with and the people around them and i think that that's an important thing to remember that is often not dealt with in these fantasy stories where even if people come from humble beginnings it's only as the shire part of the story and they rise up to greater levels later on as as they go through their hero's journey um and or so, shy not the shire <laughs> Right. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I think you're exactly right. And and maybe if you start reading it from with an eye towards that perspective of being critical of Catelyn as being part of the intent and the purpose here, I think you might start to to get more of it rather than it being yet another story about the rich woman yeah. scared for her rich kid. I also think too, I mean, like, and and I, and we talked about this ages ago, right? But like, I'm not, I'm not a big fantasy reader to begin with. I, I, I like to read, but fantasy is not something I've really delved into. Something I'm getting, especially with the fact that like, we're pretty close to the end of this book, is that like, I'm getting the sense that book one is really just a setup for how the world will now look as we get into book two and, and on, you know, the shattering of the status quo into a, you know, a fractional existence and what that means. Right. And it wouldn't surprise me if, as we get into book two and further, that that, that that equality between, say, Lannister and Stark, you know, positions in society starts to shift. And we start to see a much more, like, clear duality. There's mm -hmm. those who have, which I'm assuming will be Lannisters, those that are fighting to regain what they had, people like the Starks. But right. I don't know, and, and I'm excited to see. Yeah, I, I just wanted to emphasize that in addition to that, you're absolutely right to identify that there are yeah. plenty of people other than these two factions in this world, plenty who 
don't have or used to have but never had uh and are experiencing things from that perspective and uh it's it's good and and helpful i think to keep that in mind as well um but let's keep moving through this chapter here it's a pretty quick one so yeah I don't think it's bad that that we got derailed here uh but you know we have this plan laid out if they're going to lure jamie into the ambush and that brings us to the point where they do so and I, I will say, and and if you want to focus on anything specific, then I'm happy to, but that's basically the rest of the chapter. Their plan goes into action and it works. There's a lot of beauty in the right. And, and for all the criticisms here about like the subtlety and lack of subtlety that George R. R. Martin does and Catelyn. And the fact is there's some really beautiful writing here about this battle. It is a very pretty experience. We get to sense the surroundings. We understand. At one point, it's so dark that Catelyn decides to close her eyes and just listen. And we mm -hmm. hear the battle as it's going on. And we understand where that fear comes from. Who knows who's screaming this way or calling for help? She hears Rob. He sounds like he's next to her. He's not. I mean, it's really beautiful. But it yeah. quickly, quickly jumps to the end of the battle. Not that it's a quick battle, but that and then basically the sun rises and the battle has gone according to right. plan. They have captured wanna, Jamie Lannister. Yeah, I, I want to single out two pieces of the writing here, yeah, which please. Uh, just just to read, which I think cover really the entirety of what we see here. The first is the start of the battle. There's a, a bird calls that signal that the Lannisters yeah. are there that they hear, and uh, she thinks back to Rob pointing at the map. You're going to raid Jamie here, and we'll be waiting here. And then there's this quote. Here was a hush in the night, moonlight and shadows, a thick carpet of the dead leaves underfoot, densely wooded ridges sloping gently down to the stream bed, the underbrush thinning as the ground fell away. Here was her son on his stallion, glancing back at her one last time and lifting his sword in salute. Here was the call of Mage Mormont's warhorn, a long low blast that rolled down the valley from the east to tell them that the last of Jamie's riders had entered the trap, and Greywind threw back his head and howled. It was a terrible sound, a frightening sound, yet there was music in it too. So this is what death sounds like. And mm. I, I just get chills reading that. I absolutely love that. But the, the war horns and gray wolf's howl signals the charge from both sides. The whispering wood let out its breath all at once as the bowmen fire. And that's when the sounds of death and destruction start. And then, as you said, she closes her eyes uh, as, as she listens to the battle. She heard hoofbeats, iron boots splashing in shallow water, the woody sound of swords on oaken shields and the scrape of steel against steel, the hiss of arrows, the thunder of drums, the terrified screaming of a thousand horses. And it's so perfect because it captures in one sentence there both the beauty and the wonder of it and the fear. And those two things match together. It's the terrified screaming along with the sound of a scene of a movie scene that you can hear perfectly in your head uh, and experience in that way along with her. And I just really love both of those moments as kind of bookends on either side of it, because that second segment ultimately ends with, and then the sounds died away and she opens her eyes and it's dawn. Yeah. And and I can't stress enough. It really is a beautiful chapter and a beautiful scene. I mean, it's it just gorgeous to watch. I, I didn't have it marked in my book, but one of the images that I really loved is when the men bring their spears up out of camouflage and the leaves fall away from the spear mm -hmm. tips and the moon is striking their spear tips as silver. I mean, it's gorgeous. It's really gorgeous to, to experience it that way. I can only imagine, because it's funny, when I think about the period pieces like movies that deal with these moments, you know, it's the 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 energy of war that comes out in those scenes. 
here there's a beauty of the situation and it, it really is gorgeous to experience it simultaneously makes you want to be there and see what she's seeing and see the beauty of it while instilling the fear that makes you absolutely not want to be there uh, i know it's <laughs> funny you say that has anybody thought about making this book into a tv show brilliant idea oh my god call nbc <laughs> they'd crush we'll see this. What we can do. i feel like it would require too many naked scenes uh with that said though the end of the chapter kind of rushes upon us the fact is is that catlin goes through this experience of it through her senses and and we we experience that as the reader but for us as the reader the pages quickly come to an end the battle's over the sun is rising they have won rob is alive and more than that they've captured jamie lannister Mm-hmm. Jamie is smarmy as ever, but so be it. Like, that's what it is. Theon Greyjoy is there, and he is waxing poetic as uh, poetic is the wrong way to say it. He's like he's a, being a, a douche. <laughs> yeah, he, he's just like a, a, a young puppy, right? Like, he's just like, yeah. this is a battle that everyone will tell stories of. And I do think that he offers a really wonderful, you know, like, they're young boys like the, right. they they are now part of the stories that they grew up hearing will their stories be told who knows but but it, i'm sure the experience feels that way uh he's also quick to say let's just chop off jamie's head right now that'll be good and uh mm-hmm. rob is quick to say he's much more worthwhile to us alive than dead which yeah annoy right like <laughs> yeah no it's just beyond being an idiot you know it's it's fun you talking about the stories because something we've spoken about before that i really enjoy about these books you have all of these stories about these figures out of legend who all have these names these uh nicknames that they go by and we're seeing in real time people with those same things and so often they're barbs or they're insults or you know sometimes it's turning some feature about them into something larger than life and in this chapter speaking of them, them turning into songs with this battle we learn that they've started calling rob the young wolf uh and so you can just imagine you know who knows if it'll work out this way but uh, 200 years from now the equivalent of bran learning about the young wolf and the battle of the whispering right. wood and that's, right that's so perfect and of course that's what's in beyond's mind here although i can't help but think and say that history is written by the victors Mm-hmm. And one battle one is far from a war uh, victorized. Yeah. Well, that's a, a perfect segue into asking about what comes next. Um, but before we do, I think we should just, just wrap up a couple of minor points in uh, the end of this chapter here. Of course, they've captured Jamie. We learned that they've captured a couple of other Lannister nephews, which I mm-hmm. think is, is just worth noting because more prisoners to trade or to leverage for things. Uh, but we also hear that Jamie needs to be put under guard, not because they're worried about him doing something or escaping, but because Lord Karstark is going to want to kill him because Jamie cut down two of his sons, Torrin and Eddard Karstark. Uh, and um, we also learned last chapter, although I doubt he knows this yet, that Harry and Karstark, who I have to assume is another one of his sons, was among the captured. Uh, so this is, is just... Uh, a big victory for the Stark cause, but a rough day for him. And similarly, uh, although this is not highlighted quite as well, we learned in the battle, the foot battle um, from Tyrion's chapter, Lord Hornwood was the listed casualty among the nobility from the north. And we hear here 
that uh, Darren Hornwood was also killed alongside those two Karstarks for uh, when Jamie was trying to get to Rob. And so there are just some families that have really borne the brunt of the casualties here while everyone else is celebrating. They'll, they'll be in mourning, which I, I yeah. wanted to single out. And then the chapter wraps up with Kat pointing out, you know, job's not done. I will uh, say, though, go, going to your question about, like, what's next and where does this go? For the yeah. first time in the book and that we've written, because you've been asking this question for a while at different moments. For the first time, I'm realizing it's time to let go of the TV show. Mm-hmm. So I know that you introduced this, this podcast with saying, you know, the only spoilers are what Michael remembers from watching the TV show a decade ago. And the fact is, is that we are really getting to the end of what I remember. There yeah. are three key plot points from the TV show that stay with me. And th- th- I mean, th- and, and, and anybody that's seen the TV show or existed in the last decade are right. going to know about this. We talked about one already, which is that Ned's going to die. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know this and it, I just can't project forward in the book without accepting that this is knowledge that I know. And maybe the books go a different direction, but I can't separate that those experiences that said i the we're like i said we're getting to a point where my memory of the tv show is really fading i i know there's these two other plot points in the future which i'm not going to spoil now for anybody that's listening but i will spoil in the future um but with that said i i you know what i i'm going to start with what i usually say which is i don't i god i don't know what's going to happen but with that said Here's what I know. Jamie Lannister is high, high value. His father, Tywin, adores him. His sister, Cersei, has sex with him. He's the father of Joffrey. Like, like, even though from a political perspective, it may not be the biggest play, right? Joffrey has to be the quote-unquote official son of Robert Baratheon to maintain the crown. The fact is that Cersei clearly has a soft spot and a need for for uh, Jamie, uh, as does Tywin. As, as Tywin. Yeah, and so having Jamie as a as a captive, the fact is is that like like the war effort can slow down from the Stark side in my mind. Yeah, there's more battles to be won, but with a Jamie in your prison, go get Ned. Right. You know, be like, you give us Ned and he'll, we'll find a common place to find, you know, a, a, a equanimity from, right? Like, right. all right, give swap. us Ned. He'll go up to the Night's Watch. You know, he'll be out of your way. You guys do what you need to. You can get Jamie. That's what I think. And I already gave away what I said, right? Like, I know Ned's going to die. So clearly that's not going to happen. I, I, I do wonder... You know, there's clearly allusions in this chapter to the fact that there are people out for Jamie's head. And I wonder if that will, you know, blind. Yeah, so let me break yeah, this down into, into smaller, more digestible pieces sure, for you. Yeah. Uh, the first, most immediate question is, Catelyn says, you know, you've locked the head off the snake, but there's still the rest of this army camped out around River Run. And uh, and we close, close out with Rob saying, yeah, that's right. That's next. We got to go there. Uh, so are they going to relieve the siege? Are they going to be able to deal with that? You know, are we even going to see this or is this just a foregone conclusion or is there going to be some more complications? I mean, there's even the possibility of they go in to fight that fight and in the disruption and in the battle that ensues, Jamie gets away or gets retaken by retreating Lannister forces. You know, like, like they're still, they're not done here. I think that the... The conversations up until now have been, how do we take River Run back? 
not how do we capture Jamie? This is my my understanding. Mm-hmm. With that said, the capture of Jamie Lannister is a huge win for this sort of Stark army in the North Army. If I was in Rob's position, getting Jamie Lannister back to Winterfell would be number one. Okay. Get him up there, send a huge number, like a good number of like armed people with him. Nobody needs to know that's where he is, but right. we're going to throw him in a deep dungeon in the crypts up there. We'll lock him up. We're going to make sure nobody can touch him. And when we're ready to release him, we will. Right. That would be number one for me. Great with that said, from there is like, I would start getting diplomatic. Big war and violent efforts go to the side. Dear Tywin, this right. raven is here to tell you we have Jamie. What would you like to do? We're ready yeah. to kill him. And we're also ready to go and take the rest of your forces. If not, we can start to talk and figure out what's going on. Okay. That's what I, like that. I assumes like, like would be the smart thing to do. I'll say from a literary perspective... I think they'll take River Run, like like undo the siege quickly. Uh-huh. They 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 kind of crushed this moment, and I assume that the next Rob or Catlin chapter will be. And now that we finished taking back River Run, you right. know, like okay. that's that's my assumption. Uh, but but again, all of that because it's a little more, it's a little kind of more boring if we just jump into like political Raven conversation, you know, correspondence, right. like going back and forth. Um. So that's that's one assumption there. With that said, I do, I, yeah, I, I continue to support that perspective because I think that Tywin's learning that Rob has splintered his faction into two and they went to River Run. Mm-hmm. The fear is Jamie, right? Like, like the concern, there's a concern of do we lose the siege of River Run? But I don't know, and, and maybe you can speak to it, but I don't know how strategic River Run is as a whole. Yeah, like, you know, I think it's more, it's it's pretty tough to defend, putting aside the specific castle itself, which is uh, a, a fortress, you know, it has the rivers around right. it that helps keep it safe. Um, but we've talked about this before, the riverlands are central, they do not have natural borders, they don't have the mountains of the Erie or the mm-hmm. neck to funnel, uh, to, to create a bottleneck of entering forces, this is, is tough to defend. And uh, from that perspective, you know, I think taking River Run was important to keep the Riverlanders and the Tullys out of the war, or, you know, obviously they're not out of the war, they're in the war, but to keep um, isolated and splintered and to try and deal with things from that perspective. And so, you know, I think breaking that helps Rob in bringing those people into his forces and into his side. So it's not yeah. necessarily that he wants the location. Uh, as much as he wants to relieve the Tullys, free Catelyn's family, free the armies that are maybe pinned down from this perspective, um, which ultimately leads leaves the, the board wide open for him. He is in a central location. They have marched kind of away from King's Landing. You know, it, it was it was they went southwest instead of southeast here. Tywin is further north uh, and got tied up in that battle there, but is still on an east-west axis between them and the capital where Ned is. Meanwhile, the Westerlands are to their west, and Tywin is not there. Jamie is obviously with them. So so it kind of leaves them able to move in a lot of different directions that that keeps the war plan somewhat unpredictable, both for us and for their opponents. Yeah, I will add on to that that there's... there's a brute strength that the Lannisters have displayed in their armies 
that neglects some strategy, whereas the Stark side seems to have some strategy but lacks some brute strength. Mm-hmm. But I can't help but think that at the end of the day, brute strength is going to win. Okay. You know, like like part of me thinks about those, you know, those movies, I'll go back to sports analogies, right? Like what are those sports movies where it's like the wily strategic team beats all the big heavy hitters? Uh-huh. And part of me is like, not that I know anything about baseball, but it's like, yeah, Yankees win, <laughs> you know, World Series. They have the most money. They get the biggest bruisers. You know, I have... Uh... I have a better sports analogy for you here. There's been a lot of discussion lately of uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk having a cage match fight. Have you heard about this? No, and but I love it. I, I I keep seeing people on the internet, I think, because Elon Musk is the primary villain of the internet these days, at least among circles that I run in, uh, saying that Zuckerberg is going to beat him. And I can't help but feel like this is every coming of age movie I've ever watched where Zuckerberg is like the weird, quiet nerd who's like, I'm going to win because I take karate. Right. And I, I know better. And then he gets his butt kicked by the big bully who's just stronger than he is. Like, I actually, you know what's funny? And I don't know who's listening, but like Dan and I are brothers. But I had the same bitch fest with dad about a movie. I can't remember. It was, it was Tom Hardy and some other guy. And Tom Hardy plays this like, like beefy, yeah military dude Uh and his brother is like a teacher and they get in a cage match and it's like the teacher wins because like he has heart yeah that's nonsense and i'm like fuck this movie because that is dumb like the tom hardy's like a beast like and he's in the military as this character like anyway so but but with that said like narratives go in different directions i don't i unlike other times when I've said this, because I'm going to say the same thing. And other times where I say, I don't know, it's because, oh yeah, who knows? It could go one way or the other. Here, from a literary perspective, I'm starting to get a little, not confused, but I I really don't know. I think that Jamie Lannister is worth more than than the kingdom to Lannisters. Uh That's what I'll say right now. Right. Based on Cersei's relationship with him, based on the way that Tyrion talks about Tywin's relationship with him, right. I think that they would give up the crown to get Jamie Lannister back, and that's a huge, huge, like, like, uh, uh, like playing piece for Stark army to have. Can Rob Stark have the maturity to understand his position? Maybe, maybe not. You right. know, I don't think that Catelyn or Rob knows that. Joffrey is the the seed, you know, the son of Cersei and Jamie. Right. Yeah, they don't. I don't think they understand the true value of what they have here. Um so so yeah, I we'll see. Yeah, I do I'll add to my prediction, I do wonder if Rob's youth becomes his Achilles heel here. Mm-hmm. That that his, you know, he just doesn't know how to handle all the pieces in his in his quiver at this point right all right well i like that a lot we'll uh we'll have to see where it heads where are we going next man what are we doing we're doing another two we have daenerys eight and aria five it's our first time in a long time seeing aria here thank god tgia because yeah. i'm excited to be around aria again yeah and we we don't know where she landed after uh all the fight scenes she got out of the castle and that's the last we've seen her so gonna find out next week Love it. Well, I'm looking forward to it, man. I want to see some resolutions come. We're getting to the end of the book. Yeah, almost there. Amazing.
That's all for this episode. Next week, we'll be discussing two chapters, A Game of Thrones, Danny 8 and Aria 5. If you enjoy our episodes, please help us out by subscribing and rating the podcast. And tell us your feedback or thoughts on Twitter at broswithbanners or shoot us an email, brotherswithoutbanners at gmail.com. Got it right that time. Thanks, as always, for listening.